Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Adam Hart and this is Tooth and Claw, the series where I explore our complex and challenging relationships with Earth's greatest predators through the people who have spent their lives studying, protecting and at times narrowly escaping them. Now, today's predators probably the most famous and feared in all the ocean. With rows of large serrated teeth, it's often thought of as a ferocious man-eater and was the villain of films that frightened a generation of beachgoers. This star of the silver screen may be the subject of fascination and fright for many, but is it really the ultimate apex predator of the ocean that films such as Jaws have led us to believe? It's time to find out the reality of the great white shark. And here to help us do just that are Dr. Alison Towner, a postdoctoral researcher at Rose University in South Africa. She has a PhD in white shark ecology and has been studying the displacement of great whites due to orcas or killer whales in South Africa. And Professor Gavin Naylor, a biologist who has specialised in evolutionary and population genetics focusing on sharks. He's also director of the Florida Programme for Shark Research. Now, Gavin, before we get into the bigger questions, what do we actually call these sharks? I've seen quite a few different names thrown around. Well, the scientific name is uh, Carcharodon carcarius. In most Western countries, we call them white sharks. The general public likes to call them great white sharks. The academic community likes to steer away from that. In Australia, they call them white pointers. And Alison can tell us uh, how she prefers to call them down in South Africa. Thanks, Gavin. I mean, I prefer white sharks, but uh, it's quite interesting. The the Afrikaans communities here have them as um, the the tummy high because they were they were known for the you know the shipwrecks eating the uh, the English victims that entered the water historically. <laughs> the English eaters. <laughs> quite a quaint local name for them. And the, the white shark does it belong to any particular group of sharks? What sort of species of sharks are related to it? Yeah, white sharks are related. Uh, they're they're lamniform sharks. So these are the mackerel sharks. They're closely related to poor beagles and salmon sharks and makos. There's two species of makos, the short fin and the long fin. And there's two species in the genus Lamna that they're closely related to the salmon shark and the, and the poor beagle. These are all large animals. They're high performance apex predators. And the white shark gets most of the attention. Yeah. And I mean, the white shark really is the most iconic of, of all of the sharks, really. What was it like seeing one for the first time? I first saw one when I was on an expedition in Australia. I was with a group that took tours out for cage diving. The procedure is you have to sit in the back of the boat. I was a graduate student. I was a, it was my first year. And you have to chum every sort of 30 seconds. And because I was the most junior person on the boat, I got the short straw so I had to be chumming at two o'clock in the morning and I'd be out there for two hours and it was a beautiful night and very still. And every 30 seconds, you you throw out a sort of a horrible, stinky mixture of blood and fat and you throw it out and it makes this long chum slick that goes out into the inky darkness. 
And I was just sort of bored thinking about all the different things I had to do. And then there was a thump at the back of the boat. And I thought, oh, we'd hit a piece of driftwood or something. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I was quite sleepy. So I turned around and I, I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at, but it's this large sort of conical structure that was about, you know, three feet wide and about two feet high. And it was, uh, you know, at the back of the boat. And then all of a sudden it moved its head. Uh, this was the, the, the nose of the shark. And I was literally about four or five feet away from it. Could have touched it if I'd reached out. It had grabbed the dive bar where there was a big bag of offal in a burlap sack. And it had tried to get that. And then it moved its, its head one side to the other. And I saw a few sparks coming from the metal. And I suddenly realized I was looking at this enormous shark and I was absolutely terrified. And then went into the rest of the boat and started shouting shark. And everybody sort of came up very groggily. You came around to me about like, uh, five o'clock in the morning. The sun came up. No sign of any shark. Everybody's thinking I'm making it up. And then they found the burlap sack which basically had a, a semicircular bite mark in it. <laughs> well, we didn't see any more sharks for a whole day. So we upped the chumming, and eventually, after a couple of days, they, they, they came back in. But um, I was terrified. I, was abs- I, I would be lying if I said otherwise. What about you, Alison? What was your first great white shark moment? I came down to South Africa and uh, actually went into an inshore environment, so literally 10 minutes from the harbour, and we waited. We waited a, a few hours. I think a lot of people often associate you putting chum in the water with with white sharks arriving immediately. And that's not actually the case. It was one of those sort of afternoon trips where, you know, the excitement and the buildup was so massive. I mean, I've been dreaming to see this animal for the whole of my life, you know. 21 years old, down the chum slit comes this shadow. As it gets nearer, it gets larger. And it was, uh, I would say, about a three and a half meter female white shark. Honestly, the first thing that struck me is this species looks ultimately more impressive in real life than in the books or on you know media. How is that possible? They are so captivating. And I just remember I was absolutely in awe. The shark circled us the whole afternoon. I was able to go into the cage, but the viz wasn't great. So, you know, you only sort of saw her face when she got really close in. So really sort of just gloom and then all of a sudden teeth, you know, absolutely spectacular. And I knew right then that was that was the place I needed to be for the rest of my career. And so it was. And when you've been in the water with them, you know, in a cage, for example, they've, they've got this reputation of being ferocious and very fierce. Is, is that the sense that you get when you're actually in their element with them? You know, they've all got their own different personalities. It's incredible. You can have a huge white shark come along that's so relaxed, placid, you know, almost calculating, you know, every um, sort of pass that it does by a bait or, you know, it's almost like there's there's a calmness about it. And then you can get a younger shark that arrives that's completely gnarly, you know, rushing the bait line the whole time. And you wouldn't want to slip overboard if you were, if you will. So they they definitely all have their own personalities and depending on size, depending on time of year, depending on motivation, if you're going to get in the water with white sharks in turbid conditions around a seal colony, which is obviously a prime foraging site for them, they're going to be more sort of motivated and behave differently. So let's say if you see them along the coastline, just sort of relaxing in the breakers, cruising in and out the surf. So I don't think this reputation that they're all gnarly eating machines is really accurate. I think they all have their own personalities. And have you ever been close to them without a cage, just just you in the water? I have, not strictly speaking without a cage. It was a little submersible. So it was myself and Andre Hartman. So it was one of the first sort of times that I'd gotten into the water with Andre. He was a, a renowned spear fisherman in his day and freediver. 
And so he really did put hands by the town that I live in on the map in terms of, uh, you know, being being a white shark hotspot. And so him and I were down in this little cage, so almost like a little modified abalone cage with pontoons and a little motor. And we were down at about 20 meters and Andre lifted the lid open. And so him and I were both sat there on scuba, basically unprotected. We were sat in the structure, but it was completely open. And we had 20 white sharks, literally 20. Like I lost count of 20 that were literally just coming over us, you know, big white bellies going right over our heads. You could touch them. They were so respectful to our our whole presence in their environment. And um, the viz was gin clear that day, which almost never happens in the Western Cape. It's often too turbid uh so it was just i mean nothing touches that in terms of an experience that i've had uh since then it down underwater with my hero <laughs> what about you gavin what's your experiences with with sharks in the water i've only ever dived with them in cages i don't think i have the courage to do otherwise the first time was actually that trip in australia and these trips are, are largely for um, independently wealthy people to experience the animals and they go down and have their pictures taken and they go down for about half an hour. Some wanted to go down multiple times, but most didn't. They just wanted to say that they'd done it. And so there was all this cage time that was available for me. So I was down in the cage for, you know, multiple hours every day because nobody else wanted to go down there. And I just loved it. And I would just watch these animals for a long time. And one of the things that I noticed is that they would hang right at the limit of my visibility, which is also the limit of their visibility. So the cage has got lots of chum in it, so they want to come towards it. You wouldn't actually see them completely. You might see a fin or a shape, and then we go away, and then they would come in and out of that zone of visibility. So they sort of know they're clearly interested in in the source of the food, but they are aware that the, the food source might be able to see them, so they sort of stay far enough away. And whenever they did come up to the cage, they always seemed to come toward the cage from a direction I was least expecting them, from behind me and underneath. And then I would see them quite boldly, you know, that they'd put their nose through. They couldn't get all the way into the cage. But, you know, if you if you didn't get out the way, you get bumped by this giant conical nose that would, would come there. And they would always arrive from behind me. And then it would be quite startling. But after a while, I became really struck by how calm most of them were. And they would uh, they would glide around with very little effort. And if you spooked them, they were just quite calmly with two fin beats of the tail, giant tail that's about, you know, uh, five feet high. Um, and they would just blast away and move fairly quickly. But the thrust from that tail would blast me to the other side of the cage. You're describing an animal that's very much at home in its environment, but also very aware of its environment. What sort of sensory capabilities do they do they have? How do they sense their prey? And I guess we should also ask, um, <laughs> what do they actually eat when they're not eating your, your chum lines and various other things? White sharks generally, up to a certain size, eat any fishes and squid that they can, that they can find. They eat other sharks. And then after about 12 feet long, Uh, They seem to sort of shift their diet, not completely, but they incorporate more marine mammals, seals, whale carcasses. So they've got a good eyesight. They have a good sense of smell. They also have this unusual set of organs, electrical organs that are in high concentration around the snout and the top of the nose. These are ampullae of Lorenzini. And these are actually the most sensitive electrical detector 
known in the animal kingdom. They can detect 10 to the minus 12 volts, tiny amount of electrical pressure. And uh, the world is full of electricity. We haven't got very good receptors to detect electricity, but sharks do. So when they're moving through their world, everything's got an electric field around it. And so just as when we move through our world, we're very visual animals. We see different things come into focus in 3D because we've got stereoscopic vision so we can see where our environment is. Well, they can do the same thing with this completely different sense that we don't have access to electrically. Uh, But it's quite near field. So they can only really detect electrical activity within about two feet. So they can hear very well. So they can hear things from, you know, probably a kilometer or two away fairly reasonably. They've got uh, very good hearing. They will move in on on hearing it. They'll follow a, a chum slick and move up the concentration gradient to find out where the source of the food is. And then when they get closer to it, they will see and use their vision. Uh, and their, their visibility is exactly the same for them as it is for us. And when they get close to their prey, they can actually detect electrical activity when they're going to bite or investigate something. So, so those are sort of the basic senses that they have. So we've heard a lot about how sharks can detect prey, but Alison, how do they actually go about hunting it? Well, their hunting tactics are really interesting. Uh, we did quite a lot of work here in a coastal bay in South Africa, active tracking them, and we learned that they're quite different. When it comes to being an apex predator, often you're categorized as an ambush predator or an active searcher. So, for example, a Nile crocodile, your ambush predator typically sits and waits for its prey to come overhead. Then it launches and ambushes its prey. A leopard or a cheetah is an active searcher, so it physically runs down its prey to exhaustion. Not many top predators do this whole mode switching. And what we learned is that the white sharks in this region actually do here down in the Cape. Um, the species of pinniped that they most likely target, the Cape fur seal, is very agile. So what they tend to do is they they sort of line the silhouette up on the surface and then they charge at full speed to try and intercept that prey. And in the process, they come launching out of the water in this incredible aerial display. It's known as a polaris breach. And that's a specific strategy that really the South African white sharks or the Southern African white sharks have honed uh, down because of the, you know, the agility of their prey. Then again, when it comes to other species, I mean, as Gavin said, with chum slicks, the best example of a chum slick, of course, is what a whale carcass delivers into the ocean, the amount of lipids and oils and fats. So again, that's scavenging. It's not active hunting, but they they can hone in on that from miles away. And they absolutely gouge themselves when they get the opportunity uh, to feed on, on a whale carcass. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Adam Hart and this is Tooth and Claw. Today, we're talking about the ocean's most famous predator, the great white shark. And joining us are Dr. Alison Towner from Rose University in South Africa and Professor Gavin Naylor, Director of the Florida Programme for Shark Research. I guess if we're talking about great white sharks and prey and being predators, there's something we really need to touch on, which is their reputation for targeting humans occasionally. Gavin, can you explain uh, the situation there? Why, why do they sometimes attack people? How common is it then? And what sort of factors lead into it? Most of the white sharks that we have access to as a scientific community and fishermen are close to seal colonies. White sharks are all over the world, but we only see them where they are near the surface. And they're near the surface where they feed on seals. And occasionally, um, if these animals are targeting seals, they make mistakes. They see other animals splashing around on the surface. And as Alison has suggested, they, they are ambush predators. So if they see 
They're, they've, they're trained on looking for seals. Seals are incredibly agile, very, very hard to, to, to catch. And so what white sharks will do is look for one that's unaware. Well, if you see a human that's swimming at the surface, splashing around and, and not going particularly fast, then it looks like a, you know, a, a viable prospect. And so if you're trained on looking for seals, and then you see uh, another mammal floating near the surface, splashing around, then it's like, oh, look, there's one. I'll go for that. It seems to be minding its own business. And so we think that a lot of bites on humans in these particular areas are associated with an entrainment for marine mammals, and then they get confused and they target they target a human. All of the uh, the bites by white sharks tend to be in areas where white sharks are close to the surface and white sharks are close to the surface when they're feeding on marine mammals. In New England, about 30 years ago, uh, a lot of the seals, a lot of the marine mammals have become protected. Their populations were, were dwindling and the Marine Mammal Protection Act uh, protected them and seal populations have expanded. And now we've got a, a large number of seals they're doing very well thank you very much and because there's so many seals the white sharks that traditionally target them have moved into the area so we now have a lot of seals in new england and the white shark population is expanding in that area and there is some uh, anecdotal evidence that the prime spots for hunting are going to be close to where the seal haulouts are and these are going to be managed by the larger sort of alpha females, the big animals that are very close to the food source. The uh, less experienced and smaller animals will be pushed to the margins of the sweet spot. And as the populations of white sharks get larger, so those margins start to encroach on other areas where quite a long way away, maybe a kilometer or two away from the epicenter of the seals, into areas where people may be surfing or swimming. And so as the white shark population expands, you've got these more naive, younger animals moving into areas where there are people. And so we suspect, because most of the bites are actually done by sort of a teenage white sharks, they're in the, sort of the 12 to 14-foot size category, there's a few, it's absolutely true, done by the enormous ones that are 18 feet. But a lot of them tend to be the result of these subadult animals that, that mistakenly think a human is a seal. And uh, we see a little bit of this happening in, um, in New England. And so it'd be really interesting to hear um, Alison's take uh, if they see any a sort of age structure associated with the bites on humans in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, here in South Africa, we've, we've had quite a shift in where the white sharks are. Uh, and ultimately, that led to two fatal bite incidents um, last year, where, you know, we had this uptick in individuals within a coastal bay. And, and as Gavin said, around around teenage size. But because they're sort of all occupying this bay and, and kind of overlapping in their space use in, in, in too much of an intense way. Um, of course, that led to too many being close to shore and just, you know, a higher percentage risk. And, and it, it did. It led to, to two fatalities. So we often associate these, you know, very large, mature animals as being, um, well, I suppose whenever a shark bite incident is reported, it's always a massive white shark that makes the press, right? But but the reality is it's, it's generally your teenagers. And that demographic definitely shows here in South Africa as well. 
Alison, you've been studying the displacement of great whites due to orcas in South Africa. But before we get to that, what took you to South Africa in the first place? Well, I always knew from a kid that I, well, I dreamed of studying white sharks. And I kind of always knew that South Africa was one of the best places to see them on the planet. The great thing about this location is the accessibility. Of course, seals and pinnipeds are a prime prey species, not the only prey species they forage for, but most of those seal colonies in South Africa are very close to shore. So you're looking at very short boat trips out to them. And so that was what brought me here. And there's a lot of ecotourism and things related to sharks around South Africa, especially recently. What's the relationship between that and the research that you do? Yeah, correct. So the bay that I'm located in, so I'm in a, a little fishing town two and a half hours uh, east of Cape Town called Hansby. And it's it's known as the white shark capital of the world, really, because, I mean, it's the most utilized for white shark cage diving operations. There's eight permitted boats that can launch and go out just 10 minutes from the harbor, anchor up, get a chum slit going and, and would have reliably seen white sharks throughout the year here. Uh, it was the first country in the world to fully sort of legally protect the species back in 1991. And then that was really the inception of the cage diving industry. So, yeah, I saw that as a great opportunity to come down and, and utilize the platform of cage diving to to make observational studies, which then led to me completing my master's degree at University of Cape Town. And yeah, it's, it's a great way to sort of tie in the research with um, with tourism. You've got that opportunity to be out there that's sort of paid for. Of course, this world of science we live in is massively underfunded. And so a great opportunity to be out there every day, engaging with international tourists, you know, observing the species and being able to make some research papers about it. And what's happened there recently? The disappearance of white sharks from these key coastal bays in the Western Cape. So it started in False Bay, Cape Town. Uh, again, Seal Island is a, a Cape Fur Seal colony. Again, it's a location that white shark operators would reliably see the sharks at. Uh, four operators permitted to work there. Uh, so False Bay, Cape Town, and then Hands by the region I'm in with the eight operators have basically, yeah, they, they've lost their white sharks. They've disappeared, let's say. Um, and so this generated, of course, a lot of global interest and a lot of questions as to, well, where have they gone? <laughs> it's a very abrupt disappearance. Doesn't seem to be a, you know, a sort of standard decline. It, it's not, you know, it's not something that's happened consistently over time. It's very sudden. And uh, in 2015, actually, what happened was a pair of killer whales arrived in Cape Town that we hadn't logged along this coast before. They were adult males. And um, we think through genetics, they are either brothers or cousins. They've not verified that, but they're certainly related. And they sort of arrived with this incredible ability to eviscerate sharks and consume their livers. Um, so they're not known. They're not from the South African stock. So it was very interesting. They'd arrived in Cape Town 2015, and that's when they'd lost their white sharks. And then down the coast in Hansby in 2017, the first time we saw them here, we also lost our white sharks. So, yeah, there seemed to be this trend of them being around and then the sharks vanishing. You, you dropped in quite casually there. Uh, they, they eviscerate the shark and eat their livers. I think we possibly need to unpack that a little bit. What, what, what's actually happening with these attacks? I mean, that sounds pretty dramatic. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of one apex predator being dethroned by another because I'd necropsied a white shark that had six uh, bitten in half adult Cape Fur seals in its stomach. So we know that white sharks are, are capable of these incredible, uh, you know, predatory uh, accomplishments. But then in come these killer whales that that literally tear open sharks and just extract the portion of them that, that they want that are most nutritionally um 
valuable and then they discard the rest of the carcass. So I guess just to summarise, because the chronology can get quite uh, quite, uh, quite extensive when you try and explain everything at once, but basically Cape Town lost their white sharks 2015, but we had no evidence as to sort of what really was happening other than the sighting of the, the two killer whales. And it was only in Hansby in 2017 that the carcasses of white sharks actually started to wash out. And then we were able to verify, okay, yeah, these animals are ripped open. There's no other animal that could do that so neatly at sea. Um, livers are gone. And we're talking, you know, the first white shark we necropsied was five meters long. So big, big animal. Um, and, and that's exactly the strategy that the killer whales use is they, um, yeah, they go for that really oily, lipid rich liver. And it's incredibly uh, damaging to the, the local stocks because the white sharks then just literally, they, they exhibit what we call flight responses. They, they get out of the area like, rapidly and directionally and they don't come back for extended time periods i can't say i blame them no exactly <laughs> it's kind of smart has that behavior ever been seen before with with killer whales and sharks or is that a, a new behavior that's appeared off south africa and off the south african coast no that is a behavior that's absolutely been seen before multiple species of sharks have you know fallen prey to killer whales all around the world it generally tends to be your offshore killer whales that are you know they're given the name for the reason they're found um not by the coast, strictly speaking, more more in the pelagic realm, um, but never before had carcasses washed out because, like I say, it doesn't really happen very commonly close to the shore. The ability that the pair of them have to um, to eviscerate their prey and to uh, to consume them is is quite astounding. And this targeting of the liver is really interesting. You mentioned it's very oily and lipid rich. Is it, is it a huge organ within a shark? What, what other functions does it have? So the liver of a shark is huge. It's actually, its function is for buoyancy. They're not like your bony fish that have air bladders. So they use, you know, this very lipid rich, oily liver to uh, maintain their position in the water column. And it's a really big organ. It's double compartment. Uh, it can be up to a third of their body weight. Because it's so packed with lipids and oils, it's, it's literally, um, it's the most nutritious part of the shark. So I guess uh, our idea of the great white shark being the apex predator of the ocean is, isn't actually true. It's, um, it's killer whales that are, or are there examples of, of sharks taking killer whales out? Is it, a, is it an, equal, an equal tussle for the title? I mean, I've never heard of any live predations from uh, white sharks on killer whales. I mean, I think uh, white sharks are notorious for targeting marine mammals, um, and I'm sure they would eat a, a dead orca. But uh, I, I wouldn't put uh, uh, very good odds on a white shark being able to tackle uh, an orca. Uh, the orcas are, I mean, they hunt in packs, they are nimble, they're smart, they learn. Uh, orca, if it's uh, one that's, that's malevolent, uh, I think it would be an absolutely terrifying animal to have to deal with. You've been listening to Tooth and Claw with great white shark experts Dr. Alison Towner and Professor Gavin Naylor. I'm Adam Hart and the producer was Jonathan Blackwell. And you can listen to previous episodes by going to bbcworldservice.com forward slash discovery. The Global Story is a brand new podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing major news stories into focus. Every weekday, we take a close-up look at one big global news story so you can understand what's really going on. While the Global News Podcast brings you all the latest world events, we drill deep into one major story, providing insights from the BBC's worldwide network of journalists. The Global Story, making sense of the news with smart takes and a fresh perspective. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts.